Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Enlighten Me Radio. I'm your host, Maria Rippo, the founder of Lotus Rising Healing and Wellness at MariaRippo.com. And Enlighten Me Radio's mission is to empower people to embrace their struggle with weight and food as a powerful path of inner as well as outer transformation. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Tracy Mann. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota and an expert on the psychology of eating, dieting, and self-control. Um, through her research in her health and eating lab, she exposes the diet mega industry's hype-filled promises, which I'm so excited about. And her book, Secrets from the Eating Lab, contains revolutionary scientifically-based truths about how and why we eat, as well as the crucial importance of accepting our bodies and staying within our preset weight range. If you've ever been on a diet or plan to go on one or want to find real solutions to your challenges with weight, this interview is for you. She's going to be revealing her fascinating discoveries with us today. So welcome, Tracy. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to talk to you. Yeah, we've been talking about this interview for a while. So um, I have just loved your book, and I am a huge uh, believer in debunking this myth of dieting because um, I think, for the most part, it makes us crazy. It made me crazy. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so your work is so important. Um, So welcome today. Thank you. I'm happy to talk about all debunking all these dieting myths. Yay. Yeah. Good. So um, I just want to start with your book kind of starts out with why diets fail. And I think this is such an important part of the puzzle of understanding for people. So would you talk about that a little bit, why they fail? Yeah, and I have to say I agree that this is such an important piece of it, probably the most important piece of it. Really. Mm-hmm. Um, because diets failing, people, when people go on diets and they fail, they think of it as a personal failure. They think of it as something that they messed up. Um, and it turns out that is all wrong. Thinking that is all wrong. Because really, diet failing is a sort of expected, predictable part of going on a diet, if that makes sense. So oh, it's diet- so important. It's what actually impressed me, because I noticed that when you were a teenager and went on a diet, you realized the diet was defective. But for me, I thought I was defective. Huge difference. Right. Yeah, that is a huge difference. I don't know that I necessarily realized that exactly then. It was more thinking back later that I realized it. It did seem ridiculous to me to be on a diet and to go on a diet. But um, but we can get back to that. Um, So yeah. So basically, well, first of all, what the data show is that people can lose weight on pretty much any diet. And they can lose, on average, people lose about 10% of their starting weight on, you know, sounding diets and crazy sounding diets, whatever it is. It hardly matters. People basically lose about 10% of their starting weight. That's predictable. 
the next thing that's predictable is in the next two to five years, people gain it all back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a predictable part of the pattern. And it is fully explainable from what we know about how our bodies respond to not getting enough calories in. So, you know, we evolved to survive through famines, um, which means that the bodies that survived in a famine and went on to, you know, have more babies and, and influence the genes of further generations um, were the ones that did these certain things, which help you if you're going to starve to death, but don't help you at all if you're trying to lose weight. So for example, um, if not enough calories are coming in, one thing that your body changes is its metabolism. And dieters all know this. They've all experienced it. They've noticed it. Um, So basically what happens is if, let's say to lose weight, you have to consume a thousand calories a day. If you consume more than that, you gain weight. But if you consume that, you You'll stay, you'll stay the same or you'll lose weight. After dieting for a while, if you consume 1,000 calories a day, you'll gain weight. Because mm. your, metabolism, your metabolism changes to help you survive on fewer calories per day. That's how you survive the famine, you know, or how our ancestors survived the famine, by getting by on fewer calories a day. The problem with that for a dieter is if your body can get by on fewer calories a day, that leaves more left over to store as fat. And so the mm-hmm. result is you don't, you don't lose weight. So the amount of calories that you used to lose weight by consuming now, after dieting a while, you don't gain. Um, so that's, you know, super unfair and annoying, but that is the way it is. Um, and that is a predictable result of dieting. It causes your metabolism to get annoyingly efficient. Um, which yeah. means, again, you can survive on less. Yeah. So that's one thing that, yeah. And then another thing that changes, again, a predictable uh, biological change in your body because of dieting is the levels of different hormones change. And the hormone levels that change are the hormones that have to do with feeling full and feeling hungry. Those are different hormones from each other. And, of course, the way they change is the most annoying possible way. So the hormone that makes you feel hungry, of course, levels of that go up. So you're more likely to feel hungry. The hormone that makes you feel full, of course, levels of that go down, so you're less likely to feel full. So what this means is you can eat, you know, a quantity of food that used to make you feel full, and it won't make you feel full anymore. Okay, this is a predictable expected change that happens to your body if you've been dieting a while. So your hormones wow. change. So Metabolism's change, your hormones change. And then the other big change, or I guess category of changes, is there's neurological changes, changes to your thinking processes, brain changes. So the kinds of neurological changes that happen, um, one of the things they do is make it so that you can't help but notice and focus on food if it's present. Okay, so you just become really attuned to food, to to noticing it if it's there, to thinking about it. And people just sort of, their brain just locks on the thoughts of food and can't get off it. Mm-hmm. And dieters will also tell you this exactly is their experience. They become preoccupied with thoughts of food. It's yeah. not because they're weak. It's not because, you know, it's not because they're bad at this dieting thing. It's because that's a neurological change that happens 
when not enough calories come in. And if you think about it, that also helped our ancestors survive in a famine. Because who survived in a famine? The ones who constantly thought about food and noticed food if it was there? Or the ones who never thought about food and didn't notice food was there? You know what I mean? Right. So yeah. how you can really see how this could have come to pass. So, um, so you have changes. And then a couple more things in the neurological change category. You become preoccupied with thoughts of food. You also are more likely to crave food, partly because of those, that preoccupation with thoughts of food. And you get a bigger hit or reward when you eat. You get a bigger dopamine rush when you eat food. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of thing that happens to an addict when they mm-hmm. uh, consume their drug of choice. If you get this dopamine rush. So these are all things that happen to you because you're not um, bringing enough calories in. So basically, these things are all a result of dieting. And what do they do? They make it harder and harder to keep dieting. And that's basically why diets fail over time, because all these changes happen that make it pretty much, excuse me, they make it not 100% impossible to stay on the diet. They just make it harder and harder to stay on the diet. And so because of that, you have some small percent of people who still do, who still can stay on the diet. But for most people, it becomes just insanely, ridiculously too difficult. And mm-hmm. so they go off. Yeah. So that's sort of the why. And part of it is they have to keep reducing their food intake. I mean, staying on a diet and yes. continuing to lose weight would then necessarily mean that because your metabolism is slowing down, you actually have to keep eating less and less and less, which would be so frustrating. Yes, absolutely frustrating. And this. Um, this is something, again, that people who have gone on really strict diets and lost a huge amount of weight, they've noticed this. They are very aware of this, that the amount of calories they can consume, let's say the weight that they dieted down to is 150 pounds. The amount of calories that they could consume and stay at 150 pounds is quite a bit less than what someone who weighed 150 pounds all along can consume and stay at 150 pounds. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? So they, yeah. they like for the pleasure of staying at this weight that they wanted, they get to eat much less than someone else of that weight. Super mm-hmm. unfair. I can't help but yeah. go back and say, um, well, and it's especially, unfair. Uh, yeah, totally unfair, right? And it's especially unfair when you think of the way other people talk about them and their dieting. You know, oh, they lost all this weight. I was so impressed, but then they blew it. You know, then mm-hmm. they got weak. They couldn't control themselves anymore and they gained it back. Well, that's just messed up. That's wrong because it's not that they lost control and ate more and gained back, right? It's that they kept doing the same thing and gained back instead of doing less and less and less. I mean, so people will think that you stopped trying or that you exhibited less and less self-control when you could be very easily exhibiting the exact same self-control that got you there, that got you to that lower weight that they were all very impressed with. You know, and, and, and but you're not losing weight anymore or even keeping it off anymore. Right. So, okay. Yeah. So um, you also talk about this set range that each person has yeah. a set range weight. What is that? Yes. Yeah. So they used to call it a set point, but it's more of a range. So a set range. This is a range of weights that your body basically tries to keep you in. 
Um, I mean, if you think about it, any person can't just weigh anything just the same way any person can't just be any height, right? So your body, there is a weight that your body basically is aiming at for you. And if you go too much above it or too much below it, these physical changes will happen, sort of like what I talked about before with the hormones and the metabolism. These changes will happen to bump you back up into that range or back down into that range if you've gone above it. Um, and so because of that, it's really hard to live at a weight that is below your set weight range. And so what I always encourage people to try to do is to stay in their set weight range, but just aim for the lower end of it. And sort of that lower end of your set weight range looks to me scientifically like the lowest weight you can be without setting into motion all these horrible things I just described that happen if you diet. Um, and you can stay there at that lower edge of your set weight range without doing any serious dieting. Do some, you know, make some slight changes that we can talk about, but you don't have to do any hardcore restricting to stay there at that low end of your set range. So that's where mm -hmm. I encourage people to aim for. The problem is, for lots of people, the low end of their set range is still a higher weight than they dream about being. Mm. And so I feel like we need to work on that. That's the issue. We need to, I mean, what I wish is that for, is for people to realize what the low end of their set weight range is and then find a way to be happy with that weight. Because mm. that can be at hopefully, and stay at without too much trouble and, you know, and get on with other things that matter to you instead of letting dieting take over. Right, because then we put so much energy into our body and our eating that we're not putting energy into our life. Exactly, exactly. And the people who do succeed at dieting and keeping off a huge amount of weight for a very long time generally do put all of their life energy, all their effort all their focus into maintaining that lower weight. And I don't, and, and fine, people who do that, great, whatever. But in general, as what, what I recommend, again, based on what science tells us will or won't happen, what I recommend is not to live at a weight that requires you to make that the singular focus of your life. Because what right. kind of a life is that? No, I mean, you know, focus on your work and your loved ones and your family and things you enjoy doing. You know, and just get weight should be this, like, side issue that is not a major focus. Right. Yeah. Really finding where uh, you mentioned, I'm trying to find it really quick, um, Glennon Melton's quote. Yes. Right? I love um, that quote. Like the yeah, your body page. is not your masterpiece. Your life is. Oh, I love it. Yes. I love that quote. She's amazing. Um, she is amazing. Yeah. I love it. That could not be more, right? Your body is the, I think she goes on to say something like your body is the tool you use to make the masterpiece of your life, to do the things that matter to you. It itself isn't the thing that matters, which is why it's I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, it's amazing. I, um, I work with clients to um, heal their relationship with themselves and food and all of that and stop dieting. And um, 
this is one of the things that we look at, like really bringing awareness to how much energy is really being put into um, their thoughts about food and their body and all of that. And it's pretty uh, eye-opening. Yeah, it is. I mean, I've had people say, you know, that that takes up most of their headspace on a given day. Yeah, most of it, really. Yeah. So, um, so one thing I really liked about that quote is that it's telling you to, you know, put that off to the side. And that's also a reason why I'm really frustrated by this whole body love kind of focus is where mm. they tell us we need to love our body because right. that, I feel like that makes it too important as well. Like, you know, I, I can't express this that well. That makes the standard too high. You don't need to love your body. You can have a fantastic life just liking your body or just being okay with your body or, you know, just respect your body, take care of it. But I don't see why we need to go so far as to love it. You know, I think that's a very strong emotion that is, I don't think it's necessary when it comes to your body. It's just your body, whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point. I uh, I hadn't thought about it like that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I understand that when people talk about that, they often are trying to say, however you are, you should be happy with, and you should find a way to appreciate however you are, and I get that, and that's great. I just don't think it needs to be such a strong appreciation because that is something that people strive for and cannot achieve for the most part. You know, how many right. people really achieve that standard of loving their body? And by the way, does anyone tell men to love their bodies? I don't think so. It's right. only something you ever people tell women, which instantly makes me suspicious. Although yeah. I do teach both male clients and female clients to find something that, like you said, that they can appreciate about their body, like just that their heart beats without them asking it to and that their legs work and, you know, just finding appreciation, but not having, yeah, same thing. You don't have to look in the mirror and love what your body looks like. That's maybe you don't love what it looks like. That's okay. But just getting to a place where you can honor or respect this vessel yeah. that you're living in some way. Yeah, I feel like those words are much better in, um, when it comes to talking about how you feel about your body. Appreciate, respect, mm-hmm. um, honor, but love, come on. I don't have time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you talk about stress too. This is interesting. Uh, stress is pervasive in our culture here in the U.S. Yes. How does that play a part in all of this? Well, the the weird thing about stress, so I think a lot of people understand that if you're stressed, that makes dieting harder um, because of some of the physiological effects of stress. But what I think people don't know, or because it's not really out there, is that dieting itself causes a physiological stress response. And that stress response then goes ahead and makes it harder to diet. And so this is another reason why diets don't work in the long run, because they cause stress, which itself, excuse me, which itself messes up diet. And it's also another reason why, why do you want to be on a diet anyway, if it's going to cause you stress, like you need more stress going on in your life. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's just more reasons to not diet and instead to just, 
make some sensible changes and aim for that sort of low end within your set range without doing any uh, serious restricting of calories. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the big question, willpower people, again, I think just like with dieting, they think, well, I don't have enough willpower. Yeah. You know, it's something wrong with me. <laughs> I make this joke in the book, but I mean, it's really true. Whenever I tell people that I do research on the self-control of eating, 100% of the time they say, oh my God, I need help with that. You know, and they never say, oh, I'm great at that. I am awesome at controlling my <laughs> Nobody ever says that. Not once in 25 years of doing this has anyone ever been like, oh, wow, you studied that? I'm great at that. Um, nobody's great at that. And the reason nobody's great at that is because we're people and food is yummy. And we, again, not to keep talking about how we've evolved, but people did not evolve to resist food. It's not possible. We cannot possibly have done that. We've evolved to eat food when it's there. Um, and the problem nowadays is that it's always there and it's always hugely tempting. We are just surrounded by yummy foods. So it's crazy how often, you know, there's tempting food around. I mean, not just in all the obvious places, but also like, you know, I went into Office Depot last week to buy some printer paper and there's a huge candy display. Mm-hmm. You know, what the, why is there candy at Office Depot? Doesn't, I, and why is there a candy bowl in every office building? Because right. that really causes more problems than I think people realize. Almost, I, I mean, I can't tell you how often people come in and say, oh, the candy bowl. I can't stay away from the candy bowl. Right. So people, I think, do a good job of arranging their own household in ways so that they're not constantly facing temptation, or at least they can be taught to do that. And and when you teach people to do that, they can do a very nice job of it for the most part. But you don't have a lot of control once you're outside your door. You You go into the office and there's, you know, they're bringing donuts into meetings. They're having a special lunch, which is, you know, a very um, giant and unhealthy meal. Uh, you know, everywhere you go, there's temptation. So that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why people think they don't have good willpower. Um, it's because we are, first of all, we don't, none of us do, and we're surrounded by temptation. And then the other reason that I think people don't instantly think about um, is that to, to resist one food is not one act of willpower. You know, if there's a donut on your desk, to resist that donut takes dozens and dozens of acts of willpower, right? So, I mean, imagine you're in a meeting and they bring donuts in and put them on the table. You know, as long as you're sitting in that room, you have to resist that donut every single time you notice it, which yeah. could be a lot of times, depending how boring your meeting is and the line is between you and what you're looking at. Um, you could easily notice that donut every minute, once a minute. And each time is another moment where you have to actively resist it. At any one of those times, you could reach over and take one. Um, so any given uh, temptation out there requires so many acts of willpower that even if your willpower was 
practically perfect, you'd still mess up pretty often. You know, if you were, you know, you were A plus, 95% willpower, let's say, that means, you know, nine times out of 10, you'll succeed. The next time you'll miss. You know, so I didn't really calculate that properly. That means you'll miss one time out of 20. So, <laughs> so uh, 19 times you look up at that meeting and notice that donut and resist it. The 20th time you take it. And you're probably right. going to notice it, you know, way more times than that in a meeting. And so the problem is you get no credit for all those times you resist it. Mm-hmm. Right? You can do 19 very impressive acts of willpower there. But if you eat it on the 20th, it doesn't matter. You still ate it, you know? Right. So willpower is very unforgiving that way when it comes to eating. Because one little mess up undoes lots and lots of prior success in a way that doesn't happen with other things. So I like to contrast that with studying. Studying is something that takes willpower. And, you know, my kids, all they're studying is on their laptops. And so it's really tempting for them to just click on another window and start playing a video game or something. So they have to use their self-control, use their willpower to continue studying. But so here's where things get different. If they take, you know, if they have a lapse of willpower and flip over and play a video game for five minutes, they do lose the five minutes from their study time, but that doesn't wipe out all the work they've done up until then. It doesn't wipe out all the studying. That's still in the bank. But if it's with eating and you've resisted the donut, resisted the donut, resisted the donut, and have one moment of weakness and you've eaten the donut, that erases the fact that you had been successfully resisting it all that time. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? So it just does yeah. your efforts. Whereas with other things, it doesn't undo your efforts at all. It's just, you know, it's a slight flip. Right. And, so and you were saying all- that we have a limited supply of willpower. And it's not yeah, gross. yeah, there's some evidence that that's the case, that after um, controlling yourself in one way, you have trouble controlling yourself in another way. Um, and what that generally ends up translating to for people is by the end of the day, they just have no willpower left in them to expend. Uh, another way of saying that is when you're tired it's harder to control yourself. And of course, when you're tired at the end of the day, that's when all the tempting food seems to appear, you know, all the desserts that the kids are eating, all that. So, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you did mention, this was interesting. Oh, go ahead. Wait, sum that up really quickly by just saying, so if you've gone on a diet and lost weight and regained it, you didn't regain it because your willpower is worse than everybody else's. Your willpower is just like everybody else's. Okay. Mm. But you went on a diet and that changed all these biological factors, which made willpower unusually hard. Okay? And that's why people regain. So I just wanted to clarify if it's, you know, it's not your crappy willpower that leads to weight regain after dieting. It's all those things we already talked about. Okay. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, I just wanted to make that point specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so I know that people are going to want to know, well, so if it's not willpower that I'm going to use, 
are there some strategies I can use so that I can make better choices, make the choice to exercise, make the choice to eat well. And you talk about the smart, smart regulation strategies. Right. So willpower, I think of willpower as sort of a brute force strategy, right? You're just trying to be strong, trying to use your strength of will to resist something. And, um, there's this great saying that my um, collaborator from the Netherlands taught me. If you can't be strong, you have to be smart. And mm-hmm. so instead of using strength, willpower strategy, you need to use smart, excuse me, you need to use smart strategies. So, for example, well, smart strategies have this thing in common with each other, which is that they don't require willpower. And, in fact, the main thing they do is make it so that you are not in a position to need willpower because once you're in a position to need willpower, it all falls apart. So all these smart strategies are basically keeping you from needing willpower. So to give some examples, um, so um, let me think of a good example. So one type of example is, putting obstacles between yourself and tempting things because when there's obstacles between yourself and something, it really does slow you down. Sometimes it stops you full on. Other times it slows you down. And the reason that happens is because people are lazy. We are all of us. And so little obstacle in the way will slow us. And there's good evidence for this. Um, The same person I mentioned before who taught me that nice, if you can't be strong, you have to be smart saying um, she did research showing that um, if you are trying to resist eating some, so imagine, let me just be specific about it. Imagine you have a bowl of M&Ms right there on the table with you. You're going to eat a lot of M&Ms because they're right there. But if you put up an obstacle between yourself and the M&Ms, you'll eat fewer. Here's one obstacle. Put the M&Ms on the table five feet across the room. That's an obstacle. And turns out if you use just that simple obstacle, you'll eat half as many M&Ms. Um, but she also showed an even smaller obstacle working. Instead of the bowl of M&Ms being right there at your hand at the table, she just put the M&Ms two feet across the table so that you had to extend your arm to reach into the bowl. Same as if it's five feet across the room. People ate half as many. So putting obstacles between yourself and tempting food means you don't need to use willpower, or, or at least as much willpower, and it works. You'll eat less. And some people are like, yeah, but you're still eating M&M's. Well, sure, but you get to eat M&M's because yeah. you eat them and you're a person and you should enjoy eating M&M's. You just shouldn't eat too many. So obstacles keep you from eating too many. Mm-hmm. So that's one, um, one kind of strategy. Another strategy is sort of the flip side of that. Instead of putting up obstacles between yourself and things you shouldn't eat, the flip side is removing obstacles between yourself and things you do want to be eating, healthy things, in particular vegetables. Um, there's a lot of obstacles to eating vegetables, which is a shame because vegetables are the most important thing for us to be eating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's all kinds of obstacles between us and vegetables. So one of those obstacles is that they tend to be higher maintenance than other foods. You know, you have to clean them and you know, prepare them, scrape them. A lot of them are much better if they're cooked than if they're raw. So you have to go to that trouble to do them. You know, lots of them are hard to chop and they have leaves and dirt and whatever. So it's just a huge hassle. 
episode, um, you know, so there's ways to surmount that particular obstacle. You can buy the pre-chopped stuff or um, someone has recommended, you know, when you get home from the store, clean and chop them all and have them ready to eat warm um, or even roast them and then have them in ready to eat warm. Um, so that's sort of that kind of obstacle. But um, there's other obstacles too. Um, I guess the biggie, at least for kids and maybe some of us grown-ups, is that they don't taste so good. They <laughs> don't taste so good. Or at least they don't taste as good as the other things on your plate. And that's unfortunate because vegetables are in competition with the other food on your plate for you to eat it. Right? You're going to look at your plate of food. What are you going to take from it? The yummy stuff or the, you know, the stuff that you don't like as much? Well, you take the yummy stuff. And then if you're hungry at the end, maybe you'll eat some of the other stuff. Um, So we tried to put vegetables into a competition that they could win instead of the one that they always lose, which is they lose to the potato or the, you know, fried chicken or the pasta. Um, So we did research where we put vegetables in a competition they could win, which was a competition between vegetable and nothing. And this is your best bet for a vegetable to be eaten. And so we um, went into school cafeterias and we um, gave the kids little cups of baby carrots or red pepper strips or other vegetables we gave them cups of those to eat before they went and got their lunch so that they were alone with that vegetable when they were hungry and there was nothing else to compete with that vegetable. And sure enough, like five times as many kids ate the vegetables. Now we just tried this with adults too. We literally just finished this study this week where we did, we did this with college students who were eating in the dorms, in the dorm cafeterias. And some of them we trained use this strategy. We basically said, go through the cafeteria line and get your vegetable only. Sit down, eat the vegetable, and then go through the line again and get the rest of the food and eat it. Um, So we call that the veggies first strategy. And that's not easy to do in that college setting. I mean, their friends are like, you know, are they still going to be there after they go through the line again? It's not like the easiest thing to do in a college dorm, but still, people who we train to do that consume more vegetables over the three weeks that we watch them than people who we just told to eat more vegetables. Mm. So it does work. Super easy to do at home. Just make the salad, sit down and eat it, and then get the rest of the meal going. Right. And I liked what you said about get the people that you eat with on board to do it too, and it'll be a lot easier. Definitely. Definitely. It's really hard if you're trying to do something different yourself from the rest of your family, um, especially if you have to cook them different things. That That's no good. That's too much work also. Right. Uh, why is yeah. it important? What did you find out about that? Why, why is that important that, um, or why are we so influenced by how people around us eat? Well, I think the problem is just this same thing we've been saying, that food is really tempting. Food is yummy. Food is tempting, and the more that it's in front of us, the more likely we are to eat it. So if people in your household are eating foods that you're trying not to eat for whatever reason, that's going to be really difficult. I mean, that food is there. You know, you can see it tempting you. We're not good with temptation. So best to have everyone sort of on the same page. Um, Something I've been doing here, actually, so I've been trying to reduce my sugar intake lately. Mm -hmm. Even I don't even know why I'm trying it, but whatever. And 
So, but my kids still like and want dessert all the time, and I'm totally fine with them having dessert all the time. But what I find myself doing when I'm at the store is like carefully picking things that I don't much like. You know, so yeah. they're getting a lot of fruit flavored ice cream because I don't like fruit flavored ice cream, and they're getting, you know, dark chocolate cake type things because I like light things, whatever. So right. I'm doing stuff in the house, but aiming for things that don't tempt me so much. You're not putting yourself in temptation's way. Yeah, that's uh, the, important. Yeah, the only time I'm in temptation's way is when I'm at the store buying them their dessert that I'm not tempted by. Because to do that, I have to look at all the desserts. I'm in the ice cream aisle going, hmm, which Ben and Jerry's flavor won't tempt me? And they all look and sound so good. You know, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, so it's a stupid system anyway. I shouldn't, I should be eating sugar. So now my system is I'm eating sugar on weekends. Oh, and that's okay. Been fine. That's been really fine. That's not a bad system, actually. Yeah. Uh, so whatever it is, you, like you know, once it's a habit, it gets easier and easier. It's not like hard the whole time. I feel like at first, changing a habit like that is challenging, but once you're, in the just habit of doing that, it it becomes just natural. So yeah, I mean the key is to get it to the point where you don't have to think about it, where mm-hmm. it just happens. Um, and I mean that's the whole key to a habit. Really, that's almost the definition of a habit is it happens whether or not you think about it. Right. So when something is stage, you're in the clear. Um, it's just going to happen. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. After like make an awful decision to do it or not do it, it just happens. Right, it becomes that programming. Yeah. Thankfully, our mind is set up that way, right? Wouldn't it be terrible if we had to think about every little thing we ever did? <laughs> I know that would be crazy. Okay, so my son just walked in. I'm just gonna say hi, and then we'll continue. Okay, I'm just gonna tell him them. Hey, Ben. I'm on the radio. If you'd maybe be quiet, that would be good. <laughs> I don't know if you heard. I'm doing a little podcast here. Right if you now? could just be quiet, then that would be good. I'll be done soon. Hi. I am. You can listen. Okay. Here I am. Sorry. Just had to. Nope. No problem. Sorry, um, people. <laughs> we're all real people. I'm very into the reality of life thing and not trying to have everything overly um, not realistic. So, yeah. um, no, sleep over it. How dare my son's home? No, no big deal. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I'm a mom too, so I get it. Um, okay, so. You were taught. You talk about using visualizations in creating healthy changes, and I thought it was super interesting because you talked about what does work and what definitely doesn't work as far as how you visualize yourself making changes. Oh yes, yes, yes. I haven't thought about this in a while. Yes. So okay. So there is an important difference when you're visualizing something that you want to be doing. You could either visualize the result, you know, picture yourself having won the contest or whatever. Or you can visualize the process of getting there. And so they've done research on this, which shows quite clearly that what's useful is to visualize the process. If you visualize the result, two things happen. One is it doesn't give you any help in finding a way to that result. And the other is it sort of unmotivates you because you've already kind of experienced 
it, the, the getting the thing. Um, I think this is kind of funny because they're always out there telling you to um, to visualize yourself having achieved this thing. Right. When that doesn't actually work. So what you need to do is visualize the process because uh, if you visualize the process, you can um, kind of anticipate all the little problems that are going to come up along the way. And then you can deal with that. You can um, do things ahead of time so that that doesn't happen. So that's, that's how visualizing is useful. Okay. Yeah. That was so important. I, I didn't realize that. And I do a lot of guided visualization with myself and with my clients. And I often do put the process in there, but Uh. I had never really thought about it. I just thought it would be good to visualize yourself in the process. But then you also had them kind of think about things that could, obstacles that could get in the way and visualize themselves finding, you know, what they're going to do if that shows up. And I, I felt like that was really important information because we often are just taught to visualize the outcome. Yeah, and so this way, visualizing the process, it helps you make plans for how to handle certain things. So, you know, you could think ahead of what you're going to do. I think this is the example in the book, what you're going to do with that fancy party you go to. Not that I go to fancy parties all that often, but, um, you know, where there are going to be all these separate little appetizers coming around that you don't want to eat too, too many of. So you think ahead of how you're going to deal with that. Well, I'm going to put my wine glass in one hand and a napkin and that's not going to stop me from having some of these nice um, nice items, but it's going to slow me down. I won't be able right. to have too, too if I do that. Because it'll be awkward. Mm-hmm. Things. Um, things like that. So just thinking ahead and then just figuring out little tiny fixes so that you can handle these things. Because if you don't figure out these little fixes ahead, you're not going to think of them at the time. It's just not going to happen. It's going right. to, like, they're just going to, you know, kind of spiral on their own and do what they do without you giving it any thought at all. When really just a little thought ahead, you can make a little change and everything is fine. Right. Yeah. You were talking earlier about how enjoyable the, like we like to eat, right? I always say eating is one yeah. of life's greatest pleasures. And yeah. what we really want to do is bring the pleasure back to the eating experience rather than take it away and you talk about using mindfulness so that we're like savoring and really experiencing the food and so you have found that using mindfulness is um an effective practice yeah i mean so i have some research on that but there is some research on that um actually i have done a little research on that come to think of it um, but yeah, but so what it shows is you will enjoy your food more if you make this point of noticing it, focusing on it, being aware of it, experience it, uh, you know, the sensations of it, the taste, the smell, the feel, um, you will enjoy it more. And there's actually some work showing that if you do that, you'll actually eat less. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, it's still important to enjoy your food when you do eat it. You know, if you're, you know, so I'm eating desserts only on the weekend. So I'm making sure to not eat those in front of the TV. You know what I mean? I'm making sure to pay attention when I have those. Otherwise, you have a situation where, like, you know, you're at your computer, you're typing, you're eating something, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, I ate that? 
when did I eat that? Yeah. You know, and you get to appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no point. I have one. Go ahead. I have a client that would say she was struggling with eating too many Oreos and she'd say, it was like, it's like I do a line of Oreos and I don't even then realize that I had any, you know, and when she just slowed down to enjoy the Oreos and really taste it, she came back in and she's like, Oreos are too sweet. I don't even think I like them, but she didn't realize that she was eating them so fast. Uh Uh Mm -hmm. Now there's a cat on top of me. Yes, and I'm worried her tail's gonna whack the speaker. Oh. Are we okay so far? She's going to be purring in a minute because I am now petting her. Okay. That's okay. I think I oh. only have uh, one more question, maybe one or two. But so you talk about exercise, and um, a lot of people really resist exercising or having a hard, have a hard time getting themselves to exercise what are some of the ways around that that you've found and and why is it important why is exercise even important in the first place well exercise is the most important thing exercise is what keeps us healthy people think that exercise keeps us healthy because it makes us thin but that's not true exercise keeps us healthy because it's exercise our body needs that our body needs that aerobic fitness um and uh (laughs) I'm getting very distracted. I'm so sorry. It's hard to serious when there's a cat just snuggling right up to you. Um, apologies. Um, I mean, I think people understand that exercise is important. And um, a lot of the research showing that obesity is bad for you is really um, confounded or messed up um, because it's not accounting for whether people exercise. And when the research does account for whether people exercise, they find that it's not your weight that matters. But what matters is your fitness level. If you can be fit at any weight, and if you're fit, you'll be healthy, no matter your weight. So it's for this reason that exercise is really important. Um, mm. How to get yourself to do exercise. Well, it's not so different than the healthy eating strategies I give. <clears throat> um, because the temptation when it comes to exercise is to skip it. So you have to find ways around that temptation and it's difficult um i think maybe the single most important thing and this is so annoying what i'm about to say and i hate when other people say it um, but the most important thing is finding some form of exercise that you enjoy um, Mm -hmm. because if you enjoy it you will do it and i hate when people say that because i've never really until I don't know, the last 10 years maybe, I've never really had any form of exercise I enjoyed. And it was extremely annoying when people told me to find some I liked. Um, But then I discovered hot yoga and running in lovely locations as opposed to on a treadmill. And and that really helped. Um, I guess one other strategy is to get yourself sort of locked in exercise so that you can't wiggle out because it's so easy to wiggle out of doing it. Mm-hmm. A great way to get in is by exercising with somebody so that if you don't show up, they're mad at you. <laughs> I think people show up way more than just thinking about the very long-term benefits of exercise. Mm-hmm. So if you have a friend who you for not showing up, you're going to show up. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. I liked your crew example where eight people yeah. had to show up. So it got you there because if you didn't show up, they couldn't, seven other people wouldn't be able to do the activity. And That's right. The boat could only go out if eight people showed up. And you did not want to be the one person who didn't show up when the others all got themselves out of their bed in the rain, you know, biked to the river, all to not go in the boat. So, yeah, that was the most pressure I've ever felt to actually show up to anything. And, boy, I because it was not fun. It was dark out and raining. This is when I lived in England for the year. It was, like, raining every morning and dark and cold. And I would wake up and literally the last thing I would want to do would be to bike over and go um, get in that boat. Mm-hmm. But I, I was locked in. And, of course, I signed up to do it when – you know, it wasn't right about to happen. You know, like I signed right. up ahead, locked myself in, thinking, oh, it'll be fine. It'll be good for me. And then I was stuck. Got to do it. So, yeah, the more you can get locked in, the better. Yeah. Yeah, it made me think of, I did triathlons for a while, and I was part oh, wow. of a team. And, it, and there was so much camaraderie with the team. We would, you know, work out together. We'd swim together. We'd go bike riding together and have so much fun that it just I was in the best shape of my life and then I hurt my back so I couldn't do it anymore but I got in such good shape and I thought wow signing up for a race and training with a bunch of people that are fun this is the way to go yeah that's really true and you know my brother's done that like over the last year he's never been fit over the last year he joined this group of people who were training for some big charity bike thing and every weekend, and I know this because he posted on Facebook every weekend, which annoys me when all other humans do it, but it's my brother, so it's okay. But every weekend he's posting, like, these five-hour bike rides they're going on, you know, and they're putting up all these pictures, and they're having so much fun, and they're going out after, and, you know, he's in amazing shape just wow. because of that. Part yep. of that social experience is keeping him doing it. Yeah. 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 I think there's a lot to be said for that part. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So your book, Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and Why You Should Never Diet Again. I love that part. Uh, where can people find it? It's on Amazon, I imagine. Yep. Yes, That's right. Definitely. It is on Amazon. It's in paperback now. Oh. So it's super, super affordable and right there on Amazon and yeah that's and there's so many great tips in there that obviously we didn't get to everything but there's just so much good information in there I definitely recommend people reading your book and educating them about you know how to be healthy without ever having to restrict themselves and go on a diet again so thank you so much for the work that you're doing I love it thank you so much you're so sweet yeah And thanks for taking the time to be on my show today. Oh, my pleasure. All right. And again, I'm your host, Maria Rippo, and you can find more of me at mariarippo.com and facebook.com forward slash Maria Rippo. So that is a wrap for today. Thank you so much, Tracy. You're so welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.